All right. So um, I want to dig into tonight's topic. It's kind of been an ongoing topic. Um, I didn't realize it would take this long, but you know, there's a lot in this in this reading. So for those of you who haven't, this is your first time kind of joining uh, this class or your first time since I started this reading, um, I'm going to recap it a little bit, what we've been doing. Let's say we had two sessions of this already, right? Of this text. So, and then I missed one. So this is our third, right? We'll probably have a fourth on it. So the text is called um, Transforming Suffering and Happiness. It's got a really cool name. Um, I called this series Transforming Problems into Happiness, I believe, right? So it's a little bit different what I named the series, so I apologize for the, what do you call it, false marketing. Because <laughs> eventually this text actually gets into why happiness, why, of course, we all know suffering is insufficient. We all want to sort of do something with that. But this text also gets into why happiness is also <laughs> insufficient. So it's a really interesting, I think, premise. It comes in the end of it, so we'll probably get there next time. So just to recap a bit, for those of you who were here or who weren't here, um, this is really within a Buddhist context, uh, this text. It's in a context of recognizing that there is something called awakening. Uh, there is something called enlightenment, which is something beyond concept. It's not within a dualistic framework. And it actually does go beyond both happiness and suffering. Um, I don't think it's a state that like you go to a heaven or something like that. It's just a state of being internally free, internally free from all hang-ups, delusion, and suffering, right? So within Buddhist teachings, there's thousands, and sometimes they say 84,000 different methods for bringing this about or sort of uncovering our own uh, inner awakening, right? So among these methods, Primarily, we use practices, or we usually say the two wings of practice are method practices and of compassion, loving kindness, etc., and wisdom of uncovering the nature of how things are. Right. So Buddhist wisdom is a little different than normal worldly wisdom uh, because it doesn't just include understanding intellectually; it includes actually uh, uncovering the nature of how something is and how it's binding us to dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. So this text is really framed in that, just to, just to put it in context. Because, you know, sometimes we, when we hear transforming problems, it means like, oh, we're going to do some technique or method, and then it's going to kick all my suffering out, and then I'm just going to be super happy all the time. <laughs> I think this is a very limited understanding com coming from a, a very materialistic view of, of the world and of ourselves, which isn't necessarily like you're not, none of us are bad for thinking that. It's just a habitual pattern of how, We've, taught the world, we've been taught the world works and how to solve our problems, right? So for instance, a lot of meditation and um, sort of spiritual things these days are very much based around self-improvement. And, and I'm sort of one of the people who believes we're not a self-improvement project. And I also feel Buddhism is not teaching self-improvement, though people will say Buddhism is. So I just want to be clear. I'm not saying they're wrong. I just disagree with them that that's what the tradition is doing. But it's tricky because what do we do here? You know, do we? It's not easy to understand something that goes beyond a self-improvement project. It's actually really difficult. It's much easier to think, "Oh, I'm going to do this thing and feel better," right? It's much easier to think that. But we, so we have to. So the main thing I'm, I'm saying with all this is we have to think deeper in, into our experience, and this is where this text is really coming from. Though 
the first half of it, what we've really covered so far, really does offer immediate methods to apply in order to lessen our suffering. For instance, if we're able to think of compassion for another, well, we're in pain, our pain is going to lessen. So there are immediate things we can do. It's not that there's just this ultimate thing. But this is sort of held within a more ultimate view, which we're going to mostly go into tonight. So to recap, um, like I was saying, uh, really developing on this path of awakening or, or uncovering it, we need a lot of tools because uh, we're different kinds of people with lots of proclivities and it's not like a one-size-fits-all. So the path does offer that, the Buddhist path. Um, of course, this is embodied within different traditions. It's embodied even within one tradition. There's thousands of different kinds of methods. The Mahayana uh, uh, vehicle of, of Buddhism also is, is one with with a lot of methods, right? Uh, there's just a, a heap. Probably some of them are lost. We don't even know what they are. But even now, what's in existence uh, for us to access and practice, it's a lot. So this particular text is within a set of methods we call lojong in Tibetan. And lojong means uh, mind training. Uh, it means also practices that are based in kind of reframing our identity experience. Identity here meaning like the way our ego holds uh, who and what we think we are. Now, of course, we all change throughout life. What, are I, what we view of as what the ego identifies with shifts. Like for instance, who we were at four years old, we don't identify with that kind of person anymore, right? But at that time, we really did. Even the me of yesterday, I identified really strong with, but that me of yesterday is not here today, right? Of course, there's a, there's a continuity that kind of fools us into believing there's a truly existent sense of self. And this is one of the things we're gonna open up tonight. So Lojong is um, this mind training of trying to basically through, through sets of helpful like aspirational phrases, sets of conceptual kind of reframing our, our ideas of, of what brings happiness and what brings suffering, we, train, we first train conceptually in Lojong. So it might be something like, I'm on the subway and you know, it sucks and I'm not having a good time there. I wish I was in California or somewhere else or whatever. And instead I start thinking about the others on the train and what their experience might be like. Not that they're all necessarily having a bad time, but I just start to open up the possibility that I'm not a world of one and there's others around me. This is a type of lojong, it's a type of mind training because I'm conceptually reframing my place in the world and I'm exchanging myself with another, right? So this is a, something that you'll hear over and over in lojong teachings. Uh, they're really framed, they're mostly framed around exchanging oneself for another. But this particular text actually starts with first working with oneself. So it's quite skillful. So among this, uh, it starts really with taking suffering into the path or taking the unsatisfactoriness we inevitably are going to encounter in our life into the path. And I think the first premise here is that we have to all, everyone you know, who's listening to this kind of teaching has to come to their own conclusion that suffering is unavoidable in life. And not everybody necessarily believes that or accepts that, maybe is the better word. I think everybody knows that intellectually, but not everybody accepts that. So the first part of the text, he's really just asking us and requesting us, hey, if you want to lessen your suffering, you have to accept that to a certain degree. And this is really embodied within the first noble truth of the Buddha. The Buddha you know, asks us to know suffering or know dukkha, right? 
Dukkha doesn't just mean gross suffering. You know, as you've, you guys have heard me many times, it refers to also more subtler forms of unsatisfactoriness. So first we have to kind of come to some basis or, or agreement that suffering is part of life and it's unavoidable, right? I mean, we're all going to have to die at some point. Um, I don't think that's, I mean, sure, death doesn't always have to be like super bad and painful, but I think most people, as they're leaving the body, it's all we know of our experience. So just, it's like, it's not just leaving your home, it's leaving <laughs> the shell we've been in for however many years. So for most people, there's suffering involved. So here, not only is there um, a recognition of that as, the, as kind of the first step, but then that suffering can actually be an aid for our path to awakening. So it's inevitable, but we can also use it for our path in order to wake up. So that would be a, a very similar to the example I used like on the subway, right? I'm, I'm using the direct suffering I'm experiencing, which is wanting to be anywhere else but there, <laughs> and, and instead exchanging myself for another, right? So I'm using it to develop compassion, uh, a quality we call bodhicitta, uh, if I turn my mind towards awakening in that moment. And even the view of emptiness, which we're going to talk about tonight, that might be something I'm cultivating there too. So, so we're transforming suffering through changing our view or changing our perspective on it. Because what we start to see slowly is suffering is not an objective phenomena, right? So I'm going to be pointing that out again and again and again tonight. This is a huge relief if we actually come into an experience of that. Because then we start to take our own suffering a little less seriously. I'm not saying we, we don't remedy it when necessary or go to the doctor when necessary. It's not like we don't take it that far. It's more understanding that when we change our view to it, we see how malleable it really is. And it's not as fixed and solid as we may have thought. So then we, we're using in that instance not just changing our view, but we're also transforming suffering through recognizing its nature which is we start to see its object objectivity more and more until we start to see that actually suffering is a label. So I think this is easier to see nowadays than the time he wrote this. So Dodrupshen Tempe Nima is the, the, the Tibetan teacher that wrote this text in the 19th century Tibet. Um, I think now because of how the world's so interdependent and how kind of through technology things can just pop, out, pop up out of nowhere, we have a lot of fluidity in our culture, so I don't think it's that hard to recognize this in the sense that we can see when I click on a button on Facebook, what's behind that button is like ones and zeros, obviously, but all kinds of code and stuff like that. But the button might be really sexy with a like, you know, I love how the button looks and I like the color and I like how they designed it. So our mind gets caught in the button, but we also know the button's not real. Meaning, right, it's just a, what do you call it, a UI? So what they call the cover of a something, like a website? Anyway, the design is just, right? So I think we have things for this in our culture now that, that make us more apt to this kind of teaching. So just to recap what we went over already, uh, the first part of the text was really talking about, um, the way I put it was, avoiding the problem is the problem, right? That's what he was really uh, uh, hitting on hitting at again and again. So here we're, we're urged to drop the attitude that's entirely, that's entirely unwilling to suffer. That's what he's sort of recommending here. So he says, here's a quote from the text. Here we recognize that while we're dominated by anxiety, even the tiniest problem becomes extremely difficult to cope with. 
because we have the additional burden of mental discomfort and happiness, wishing to push it away. So what he's saying here is we can have anxiety, we can have discomfort, we can have a, an illness, whatever it is, and that's, that's definitely there. No one's saying that's not suffering in the relative sense. But then we can add the, you know, a double suffering on top of that because we're like, oh, poor me, I wish this wasn't here, oh, why did this happen to me? And we're just trying everything to get rid of it, right? So here he's asking us, the first step is just recognizing, hey, and, and accepting that something that is there, right? And it's unavoidable to a certain extent. It's just happening to us. I don't think that precludes, like I said, needing to go see a doctor or something like that. He's not saying that. He's just saying we're adding anxiety on top of anxiety. So you probably heard other teachers talk about the sutra of the double arrow problem of the Buddha, right? So I mentioned that before, where you're shot with an arrow, and then instead of pulling the arrow out, you just want to know who shot the arrow and you know where it came from and all that kind of stuff. So that compounds our suffering. So that's the first thing he was talking about. So not avoiding the problem, uh, instead facing it. So then... Um, the second part of the text really went into more of the, lo the traditional Lojong uh, practices of, of cultivating joy when suffering arises. So this is a very weird concept, unless you're Buddhist. <laughs> so it's kind of, uh, some people would even wonder, like, why, what, why the hell would you want to do that? And then at the, at the same time, they may even try to talk you out of it, right? But here the premise is that we can transform a certain experience through compassion and through recogni recognition that it's not really objectively real. So here, he's advising that seeing suffering as an ally uh, is one way to help us along the path. So we use suffering to train in seeing the unreliability of samsara. That's one way. So we train in what's called renunciation mind. Uh, we can use suffering to train in taking refuge. So this would be for like a Buddhist practitioner who takes refuge in the Dharma, for instance, and you see, oh, okay, all of the work I'm putting in in my worldly life is, is you know, I gotta do some of it to make a living and survive and et cetera, and it can also help others. But ultimately, it's the Dharma that I realize in my mind that matters. So then one would turn their mind more towards the Dharma. But like I was saying he, he, before about compassion, he also says we can use suffering to train in compassion. So just small examples, so like I mentioned, just remembering that we're not the only one in a bad mood that day, or we're not the only one who just got broken up with, or we're not the only one who's suffering money problems. So instead of contracting into our problems, we begin to open up to the world, yeah? And I think that's pretty relatable. I don't think that's it's not difficult to understand. Is it easy to practice? Not necessarily, right? Because the more contracted we are, the harder it is to get out of that. So the training here is to, you know, sometimes in Lojong we train in affirmations, we train in sort of phrases, so we can use that on a conceptual level. And it might not be that we believe it right away or it completely changes our day right away, but it, takes, you know, it does uh, uh, bring efficacy in the right direction, right? So just thinking for one moment, um, it's not just about me, can open us out of this. So the Dalai Lama, I like to use this example because, I mean, obviously he's a figure that's trained in this really well. Uh, so, but, but I think he, he, he's there as an example. Um, so he was saying he had a, I think it was like a kidney stones or something really painful like that. He eventually had to get an operation. But he was driving through a part of India that was really poor and he came across um, a beggar. And if you've ever been to India, the beggars are like another level beggar, right? Because they, they even deform themselves or keep a deformation, I don't know what you call it, like a, a physical ailment 
um, in order to get more money, to be more like pitiable, right? So you see someone like with, you know, uh, not paralyzed, but what do you call it? Like their leg is completely deformed or something, they can't use it. So something like polio or something like that, you know, that did it. So anyways, he saw someone like this and he just felt so much compassion for this person's, just immediately arose in him because of his practice. So when we do practice over time and put energy into this, it's not that we're just looking for spontaneous experience. Spontaneous experience comes because we put effort every day into thinking about this. But for him, that effort sort of culminated in this moment of just spontaneous compassion. And he noticed about 10 minutes later that his pain came back or whatever, or 20 minutes later. So his extreme pain from these stones went away temporarily. So we can see, you know, this does have immediate efficacy as well as efficacy for our long-term path. So this pretty much leaves us where we are tonight, which is, um, for those of you who are following, I'm on page five of this PDF. The PDF, again, is called Transforming Happiness and Suffering. You can download it for free on, on a website called lotsawahouse.org. And it's a um, Tibetan translator project where they translate all kinds of different Tibetan texts and it's all available for free up there or by donation or whatever. So he says, by reflecting like this, our minds will be so suffused with happiness that the suffering we feel through the senses will become almost imperceptible and incapable of disturbing our minds. As we have already seen, the attitude of not wanting to suffer is the whole basis for transforming suffering into our spiritual path. So the more we arrive at actually transforming suffering into the path, the more we'll, we will enhance and reinforce all of our previous practice. So here he's starting to get at some of the benefits, which we're gonna go more into in a moment some of the benefits of this practice. But before he does that fully, um, there's this verse here I want to talk about. He says, when you first begin this training, it's vital to distance yourself from ordinary social activities. Otherwise, caught up in everyday preoccupations and busyness, you will be influenced by all of your misguided friends, asking questions like, how can you bear to put up with so much suffering and so much humiliation? So here, he's beginning to emphasize the need for solitude the need to get some space in order to do these practices. So sometimes we find it really overwhelming to do these kinds of practices in a city, and that doesn't make you a bad practitioner, that just makes you a human being, you know? So what we typically do in traditional Buddhism is we'll go away for a period of time. You know, now mostly people go on group retreats, and usually for people who have never been on a retreat, I recommend doing a group retreat first, and then try a weekend on your own. You know, consult with a teacher, uh, who can guide you and then you set up kind of a program of practice for the weekend and then you work in solitude because when we're in solitude he says since none of kind of our our, our influencers are around or the environment influencing us right we're usually in a more of a rural environment when we retreat your awareness is very lucid and clear and so it's easy to make the mind do whatever you want it to do meaning it's easy to train in these kinds of ways of thinking right so I think that's a, a big key point, just that for sometimes we get stuck in our practice and we kind of push through and it's good to have a daily practice and it's also good to be integrating it into our regular life. But then going away and doing a retreat is really important too. So for me personally, I was very fortunate to be able to do lots of years of solitary retreat. And um, yeah, I mean, I can't even say like, there'd be no way I could be here teaching you this stuff if I didn't do that. No way, no, no possibility. So it's necessary. So moving on, he, um, 
he goes into the benefits of training in Lojong. And the reason they do this in kind of a traditional text is it's hard to do this stuff. You know, it's not easy. It's not immediately accessible. And we lose heart sometimes because we might be training in compassion for someone else who just abuses us all the time, you know, verbally or whatever, or doesn't appreciate what we're doing for them, right? And so we might get fed up with it. We might get, uh, what's the word? Uh, kind of like, oh, this is useless. You know, it's not doing anything. They're just sort of, yeah, the futility of it. They're attacking me or whatever. So sometimes in traditional texts, they talk about the benefits of this because we can start to see, uh, okay, there are benefits longer term. So it's kind of like the, the selling, <laughs> the marketing of these kinds of practices. So he says uh, some of the benefits of training in Lojong are that our character will become more peaceful, will become more open and flexible, will be more confident, uh, we'll be able to work th with any negative circumstance, and our mind will be content and happy. So there's a lot more he lists, but those are just some of them uh, that I found useful. Um, so then following this, he says, to follow a spiritual path in this degenerate age, we cannot be without the armor of this kind of practice, right? So maybe I should explain what a degenerate age is. So degenerate age means an age when uh, lifespan, health, mental wellness and uh, abundance, like in the world, are decreasing, right? So this is what they call the Kali Yuga in Vedic and, and Buddhist traditions, any traditions coming out of India. Um, and so this Kali Yuga is sort of, it's, uh, 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 it displays as more chaotic, more disturbing, there's more fear, there's more war, there's more dis-ease, essentially, right? And we've been in the Kali Yuga for a while. It's not a new thing. It's, I, I don't know, I, I'd have to look it up online, but um, it's been kind of in existence for a while. And then apparently that will run its course and then a new age comes or, or a new sort of way of how it functions in the world. And from a Buddhist perspective, this comes about because of the karma of beings, meaning our habits, what we've accumulated with our mind. In a very practical way, we can just think of it, how we think and act, form the world of tomorrow, right? And we're doing this collectively every single second. So unfortunately, the Kali Yuga just gets worse and worse. <laughs> That's the bad news, right? Until, um, you know, certain Buddhist prophecies or whatever say like beings, you know, their lifespan is very short. There's not even the word Dharma around. And then apparently, you know, another wheel-turning Buddha is supposed to come. So the Buddha that taught this form of Buddhism we're studying now, Shakyamuni Buddha, he's the fourth of, of a thousand Buddhas that are supposed to come here. But again, this is really getting into the more esoteric religious stuff. But either way, I think we can see it's very practical that these kinds of teachings and ways of interacting with ourselves and others are super uh, profound and necessary. So he calls it armor. And, and I think of it like that too, because when we're cultivating this sense of uh, 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 what we call like our bodhisattva warriorship, like becoming a bodhisattva, which is a being who, out of wisdom, wishes to awaken others, right? So as a Buddhist practitioner, as a Mayana practitioner, this is what we're cultivating. And so armor here doesn't mean an armor to fight someone else. It means putting on the armor for more of this spiritual war, of working with how the ego completely tries to thwart that path, right? And so we put on the armor of love. We put on the armor of compassion here. We put on the armor of training the mind. And uh, personally, me, uh, uh, just to give you an example, I do Lojong all day long in New York. New York City is the best place for Lojong practice, in my opinion, because people are 
mean to you, <laughs> they're short with you, there's lots of noise, traffic, things don't go your way, pretty much <laughs> every time I walk out of the door, you know, it's not a necessarily an easy place to live. So that's where Lojong really is useful and actually we can grow our Lojong practice. So the sense here is if we're strong enough or we have a little bit of strength in our practice, it's almost like we can use a, um, a not so you know, great circumstance to make our practice even stronger. And that's what we're trying to do as uh, aspiring bodhisattvas. So I'm kind of moving on now through the text into this next major section. This major section is only <laughs> like two very short paragraphs uh, because mainly he's going into relative methods. And I'll be clear here. Relative method is a, is a conceptual practice. It's something we work with to reconceptualize our place in the world, like I was saying, or how we're interacting with a situation or emotion or experience. That was, that was through all everything I named earlier and recapped on. Now we're in this section where he says how to transform suffering through absolute truth. And basically this is alluding to emptiness or the nature of reality in Buddhism, which is pretty much um, the main the main liberative tool, uh, meaning not a tool in that we're bringing something in, like a religious principle that's different than how everything is. No, it's more bringing in complete insight and clear seeing in order to see how things actually are. So from a Buddhist perspective, the premise is that we are having a misapprehension constantly, that there is a self that's separate from other, right? And there is some objective reality. And so we get stuck in our projections, we get stuck in our emotions, we get stuck in our thoughts. So why this is so profound is because, first of all, it's not the nature of how things are, and that and the Buddha Dharma and the Buddha himself pointed it out very clearly. This was really, I mean, it's still, I think, the most revolutionary thing I've come into contact with in the world. But um, at the time of the Buddha, it was totally revolutionary because the spiritual traditions and things that were going on at that point um, they weren't saying, they weren't going as deep into what he sort of found through his meditation, right? Same with in the, uh, at the same time of the Buddha, there was, a, there was a, another saint that in India who um, the Jain tradition came out of, uh, Mahavira. So they were two non-dualists, basically, amongst a lot of theism. So this was pretty profound, and I think it's even more profound now because now we have scientific realism and other states of, ideologies and philosophies that we take for granted, meaning taking it for granted, meaning we just think, oh, this is how things are. And materialism is one of the trickiest ones because it, it feeds into our habit of belief already in the material, meaning we have a strong ingrained habit to believe whatever is appearing in front of us to our senses. And so scientific realism often takes advantage of that, right? Looking, constantly searching for some kind of objective reality and then claiming it's not an ideology. Good scientists will claim it's not, but, uh, uh, or sorry, will claim it is. But a lot of us kind of, there's this, I feel it's like our, uh, it's like an unnamed, unseen uh, ideology where someone will say, I, I'm atheist, I believe in science or something like that. No, you're, you're, you're a religious person who believes in atheism and science, right? So it still is a view, it's still an, an idea. Buddhism ultimately, though it is a religion, is a religion to go beyond religion, is a religion to go beyond ideology, is a religion to go beyond view. That's why it has uh, some very, that's why for me personally, it's so inspiring. 
uh, coming from like a super anti-religious <laughs> background originally. So anyways, with that said, um, here's the verses and then I'll, and I'll get more deep into them in a moment. So he says, by means of reasoning, such as the refutation of production from the four extremes, the mind is drawn towards emptiness, uh, the natural condition of things, a supreme state of peace, and there it rests. In this state, let alone harmful circumstances or suffering, not even their names can be found. Even when you come out of this state, it's not like before, when suffering arose in your mind and you would react with dread and lack of confidence. Now you can overcome it by viewing it as unreal and nothing but a label, right? So here he's talking about the natural realization that a yogi or yogini begins to uncover in their practice, um, which is the realization of emptiness. Now, I'm going to define emptiness here. So the, the Sanskrit word is shunyata, right? So shunyata, it can often be, it can even be translated as like infinite or zero. It can also mean that. Uh, but we often translate it as emptiness. So this word can be very confusing because we think of something as empty uh, as nothing, right? Or, or non-existent. But emptiness here means simply a non-existence of a singular, permanent, independent reality. So it's not emptiness like nothingness, it's an emptiness of the misapprehension we're having, or sort of penetrating through that misapprehension by recognizing whatever objective reality we believe, we believe in is not there, right? So as you can see, this is challenging, it's deep, um, it takes a lot of philosophical inquiry as well as deep meditation. But the practice we did in the beginning, the first and second foundations of awareness, are meant to uncover this naturally, if, the more we do it. Here, um, what he's citing, this, this, this practice of the refutation of production from the four extremes, um, this is really coming out of the middle way or, or Maryamaka tradition of uh, India, which was a, a set of philosophical a philosophical school. Uh, Nargarjuna uh, was one of the main figures who you know, sort of kind of commented on or wrote a lot of commentaries on the Buddha's uh, words, especially like the Prajnaparamita Sutras, the, which are uh, sutras on emptiness and on the nature of reality. And so these four are a major, I'm not going to go into detail because it'll just, it'll definitely put you to sleep. <laughs> but um, I did want to mention them because they're here. So these four are, are one way we use to analyze experience. And here, Buddhist analysis is not for then putting forth an idea of how things are. It's for actually taking away and cutting through how things are, if that makes sense, or how they're appearing. So a philosopher's job is to do this internally to the extent where they don't find that, that misapprehension dissolves because of this investigation. Yeah. So the four, though, um, that we use, this is kind of one way of working with this, are that things are not produced from themselves, uh, from something other than themselves, from both themselves and something other than themselves, or without a cause. So one would investigate these because at the end, there's no other option. So then you start to see whatever is appearing to you is actually not existent. That doesn't mean there's nothing appearing, right? So again, we're talking about a non-dual experience, which goes beyond appearance and emptiness, and goes into what we call the unification of appearance and emptiness, yeah? So these are big things to understand, and I'll try to say it from a few different angles, just so you can take away something from tonight. 
Um, so here, just to bring it down to earth a little bit, we usually think the world is real and substantial. So it appears that way to us, and our experience seems to confirm that, uh, that, that it is real and substantial. So in general, the Mayana teachings, uh, what we're talking about from, from here, uh, radically challenge this understanding. Right? They radically challenge that the world is real and substantial. Or like I said, they radically challenge this idea that there's an objective reality outside of our appearance of it. Right? Um, further, all Buddhist traditions assert that self and phenomena are a projection of the mind to a certain extent. So there are some varying views on, on this. For instance, some might come to a conclusion that uh, self is a projection or, or, or you know, phenomena are a projection, but there's some kind of partless particle. So the, it gets into very dense philosophy, very like uh, uh, hair-splitting philosophy, which can be useful if you're trying to advance your understanding and practice of emptiness. But basically, uh, to sum it up, we're challenging our projection. You know, in a very real, practical sense, we're asking the question, is my reaction here in line with how reality is, right? And we're asking, is this the ultimate reaction? Meaning, if I get angry at a certain thing, if it's ultimately true, everyone should be angry at the same thing. You see? So we can use really simple reasonings like that to gain a little bit more space, to question our experience as solid, fixed, independent, and real, right? Now, again, the point here is not then to go into some nothingness, right? And so sometimes existentialists get pretty close to a Buddhist view, <clears throat> but they go a little bit too into a nihilist direction, right? So Buddhism, we're not talking about nihilism. We're, we're talking about something that goes beyond uh, uh, being something solid and permanent or being nothing. So it's very, you can see it's very subtle. So that's one style of meditation he's presenting here. Uh, and through that, through this analysis, eventually you're left with not being able to find what you are trying to comprehend. And so he says here, uh, at that point, a supreme state of peace arises and you rest there. And that state, uh, let alone from harmful circumstances or suffering, meaning we're not seeing it as suffering anymore. Whatever we were caught up about is dissipated because we saw through its solidity. But also, even the names can't be found of that, right? So the mind finds its, its sort of own space. But then he said in post-meditation, even when you come out of this, this, he's describing now a person who has a realization of emptiness, someone who's really worked at this a lot, right? It's not like before, when suffering arose in your mind and you react with dread and lack of confidence. Now you can overcome it by viewing it as unreal and nothing but a label. Meaning, we might have the label of, uh, let's see, <laughs> I don't know, it could be anything. We could have the label of cushion, right? What I'm sitting on. It doesn't deny that I, that I this doesn't function. So I'm gonna get more clear with what emptiness means. The, the cushion can still function as a cushion, but I can't find a cushion. Meaning, if you really look into the parts of this cushion, which part of it is the actual cushion? So we do an investigation like that too. Now, some might wonder, what's the point of that? The point is you start to see the way we're objectifying it, like I hate this cushion or I love this cushion, is completely arbitrary. It's completely dependent on our perception. And we start to see our perception is what's binding us. 
So, and again, the point is to start to then have some freedom that, from that perception. And as one of my teachers says, we start to find more of a dance with how things are. So it's not that then we're pushing everything to one side and saying, oh, well, it's all nothing. No, no, still things appear, this cushion appears. It's no problem with orange juice and drinking orange juice or no problem with a coffee and drinking coffee. But we know the nature of that. And therefore we have more, I like this word, sobriety. We have more sobriety in the situation. Because when we get caught up in it, it's like being drunk. It's like being intoxicated with a situation. So this is how we start to find freedom. And in relation to this text, and then I'll, I'll finish up here for tonight and open it up for discussion. Um, in relation to this, this is how we ultimately transform suffering because we see through that there is something that is truly existent or independent as suffering. For instance, as another example, what causes suffering for me might be a cause of happiness for someone else, right? We can see this in politics today. We can see it everywhere, right? So it's very interesting to think about this. I think it could be really helpful on a social level. Because, of course, emptiness is meant for one's own liberation in order to benefit others and etc. But on a social level, it could really help us work through a lot of the divisiveness we're having. Because we can start to see, oh, I might not like this person's view, but we can start to see how they have that view and why they have it, because they're believing in their projection, just as we believe in ours. Now, again, to be clear, it doesn't then make, it's not saying relativism, that then uh, uh, nothing matters, because still, still things are functioning. So there are systems that do less violence, of course, right? But ultimately, every system does violence until you go beyond systems. So emptiness is going beyond systems. And just to maybe one last thing to say, it is the natural expression of how things are. So from a Buddhist perspective, it kind of seems like a religious principle at first, but then the more experience we get with it, we just start to uncover this is how things are, and it's just a way to explain that so we can start to access that in our experience. So I'll leave it there, and um, <laughs> if there's any questions or just uh, anything that's on your mind. Yeah. I don't know. That just seems. I, I just. These are big. I you know. I can't. Oh yeah, yeah, I yeah. have the tendency to like be like I'm not doing enough. I need to get my head around these things. But I'm starting to see the you know. Having a very specific path and a you know way to mark progress. Yeah. Usually the path for at least in the Lom Rim, I think is really so. Lom Rim is for those of you who don't know. It's a, it's called um. It just basically translates as like stages of the path. So then it's just a way uh, to progressively move through a Buddhist path. It's not the way, it's just a way, right? There's many ways in different traditions. Um, so generally what we're moving through is developing renunciation mind first, then relative bodhicitta, and then ultimate bodhicitta or emptiness. So that helps because it's sort of like renunciation mind is first just sobering up with what's actually causing us suffering Right? And so we start to find, we start to notice what actually is unreliable in life. And so it's, it's not a hatred for the world we're building, we're just, we're just starting to see how things actually are. And then we turn more towards practice and the Dharma in order to 
gain awakening. And then bodhicitta is recognizing that it's not enough to seek liberation for ourselves alone. And then emptiness is the actual method to liberate us and to actually benefit others. But it's um, but also within relative bodhicitta, you can even see here when our hearts opening to someone else. Just when we're we're offering metta or love to someone, our own self cherishing and ego also reduces. It doesn't completely eliminate, but it reduces. So all these are helpful methods moving towards wisdom. In Buddhism, one way, actually, this is maybe helpful for you all when you're kind of shopping around spiritually, because a lot of people do that these days, um, <laughs> which is that uh, um, Dharma is something that, that eventually leads to this, or I should say Buddha Dharma, for something to kind of have the qualities of being Buddhist. It has to have, usually they say the three characteristics of impermanence, dukkha, and, and anatta, or not-self. But another way to simplify that is just, is it pointing to ultimate wisdom? This ultimate wisdom of emptiness. And even if it doesn't have the label Buddhism, it doesn't have, even if it's like a non-religious path, but it does point to that, we would call it Buddha Dharma. We would say it's in line with Buddha Dharma, right? But there's a lot of things claiming that, including claiming to be Buddha Dharma that's not doing that these days. So we're running into some new issues. I don't think they're quite new. I think this has always been the case. But now you have large marketing machines behind things and sort of economic incentives. So the Lomrim is, <laughs> get back to your question, <laughs> the Lomrim is a really good method for it because you're going through progressive stages of development, right? Because it's like, how am I going to want awakening for all beings if I, if I just don't even understand how I'm bound, right? So that's the first step. Yeah, it wasn't much of a question. I'm just realizing the after topic is like my. Oh, so you're saying like it's too much? Yeah, you got to take small pieces yeah. for sure. Yeah, it's kind of like I always tell people, um, especially the way Tibetan Buddhism presents it. Though I wouldn't say it's only Tibetan Buddhism, just traditional Buddhism. It's sort of like the like a like a buffet, and so if you read a Dharma book, it's like they're giving you the whole buffet. And it can be overwhelming because you're like, what should I eat, you know? And then some people go to the dessert, but then they get sick, right? Or, that's yeah. Tendency, yeah. yeah, well, it's all of ours because we hear, oh, this is the best. Oh, like Dzogchen is the best or Mahamudra Mudra is the best or, or this thing is the best. And then we want to do it, but we're not ready for that, you know? Or, or we sort of, we bite off more than we can chew. So I'm a big fan of just taking small like, read the whole thing. There's nothing wrong with getting the buffet, but then practice something that you can relate to at the moment. And then the rest will open slowly. And then that's where having a teacher is really helpful to bounce things off of, to say, hey, what should I be doing? Because um, they can direct you, because they've gone through it and they have experience. When we're kind of like alone doing this, there's only as far as we can get. Even listening to podcasts and stuff like that, there's only a, a certain amount we can get. So I always have a teacher who I'm communicating with at least once a year on the direction of my practice and stuff. But at this stage, I, I have a lot of background to be able to guide most of my practice. But in the beginning, no way. I had to have a lot, a lot more um, accountability with someone. So there's that. But yeah, I would say just bite off smaller chunks. Like read everything and then practice something. Because otherwise then you end up practicing nothing which is super endemic because yeah. of our sort of the way we learn because we, we devour information and then we're just like, oh, I'm still yeah. pathetic and, you know, also whatever. The, <laughs> of, like, that, the little knowledge that can be, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's a mindfulness guru now, I've noticed. What do you call it? Like everybody, I say like something like, uh, when you know just enough to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and dis- discernment is on very short supply. Mm. <laughs> Not anybody in this room, though, of course, you know. <laughs> Anything else? What's coming up for you all when you're just thinking about all this stuff or taking it in? <laughs> yeah. Really angry. I think there's only one person um, working, you know, efficiently too. But it was just like it was just a long line of people, and um, and I just had that experience of being in that space with like, oh my god, everyone here is so angry. Yeah. And like you can kind of like when you see all that anger, you can kind of like, I mean, maybe not everybody can, but for whatever reason, at that moment, I was like, okay, I don't like. There's enough anger in here. Like, yeah. Like, get into the stream. You know, I don't need to participate in this stream. But, um, so that was an interesting experience in and of itself to like kind of feel all that, but be a little bit outside of it. But then by the time I got to the front, this is the best part, is the guy behind the counter was like, hey. <laughs> like he was just like so neutral, yeah. you know? Like he also wasn't, I mean, maybe he was just trying to like not absorb all the anger that was kind of coming out of the time people got up there. But it was such a, like, it stayed with me. This was like three years ago. This experience stayed with me because he also, like, treated me just, just like, patiently mm. as a person. Like, he wasn't assuming that I was going to be pissed with him. He was just, like, neutral and kind and, like, connected with me as a person just for a second, you know? So it was, like, all this stuff was happening. Just, I mean, I feel like it relates to what you're talking about in the sense of, like, yeah. what we're perceiving happening and of how we're behaving within what we're perceiving and, like... I was kind of have in this other flow compared to what was happening in the room, I think. And then maybe so was the guy. Yeah, so you probably were able to recognize it too. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's an awesome. Yeah, and I think that that's great advertising for like why it's important to grow these things because we affect people around us, right? Like in big ways. Yeah. Or the opposite, mm-hmm. you know? I run, when I run into a cashier who's all sort of grum, grumpy and mean, you know, tanks my mood, sort of, right? Yeah. No, thank you. Show something? Or? Um, well, I, was, I was thinking about this from the perspective of the little bit that, well, the amount that I've practiced this, and the way that it's sort of manifested just, like, not being conscious about not really having as many opinions about things. Mm. Sort of that's sometimes the way I take it in a very, like, yeah. practical way of just like, oh, I actually don't have to have an opinion about this right now sort of neutralizing experiences. Is that similar to what? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it can be a part of training the mind in that, just sort of like training and non-judgment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And just seeing like how my opinion sort of makes it, my opinion creates the reality. Definitely, yeah. being neutral is like, oh, well then it's not, it's not literally nothing but that kind of thing. The opinion and the story is what forms it. Yeah, I think Facebook is usually the most evident place to see this these days. 
you know, where it's like you're like cat and someone's like, ah, it's like a rant about the word cat, you know? Yeah. So it's like, because there's no context. So, yeah. you know, and, and, and yeah. they might have just read something about Trump. And so yeah. that anger got misplaced, right? Yeah. And I can yeah. feel the pull. I can feel the pull to always have an opinion. Yeah. It's pretty, it's yeah. pretty well trained at that. <laughs> No, I would say that's in line with that's Dharma practice. Like if you're noticing the pull and you're aware of the pull uh, to have the opinion and then you decide to stay more in an open question or a non-judgmental space, super powerful. I, I do that a lot these days too. Sort of like what I've tried, been tr I've noticed um, uh, it really tanks our joy pretty quickly when we, f when we just don't, we're not aware of the opinions were and the judgments were sort of producing every moment. Mm -hmm. And usually we're just unaware of it. But once we become aware, we see there's a lot there usually. But the problem isn't having them, the problem is relating, like what you're saying. Relating, like how we're relating to those judgments. Yeah. Meaning the judgments will keep coming, but like you were saying, you're relating to it in a new way by opening, opening it up, that that judgment is not necessarily the truth. You don't right? have to believe it. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and seeing it form reality. Perceived, totally. Like, like a, not a real reality, but seeing how it forms, like, oh, this is good, this is bad. Yeah. Have you ever tried, have you ever noticed some days when you're really, like, uplifted and kind of, like, in a decent mood, everybody seems kind of like that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Or the opposite, yeah, right? Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's real. And so real. here we're starting to see, and we start to ask the question, maybe our reality is a projection, mm. right? through some of those examples but it's scary i will say when you take this to deeper and deeper levels the ego does not like this it's sort of like oh no like he's he he's getting it you know and then it then it fights back yeah yeah like um sometimes i'll give you an example when we're in buddhism when we're doing these kinds of analysis like i was just reading a text on these four uh, uh avoiding these four extremes what i told you about like produced from oneself and other it's it's just challenging because you're reading very dense logical arguments and then but it's also challenging because the ego's resisting it you know because it, it, it sort of knows that mm -hmm. it's going to defeat it you know so you know there's lots of things like that those are the times i think it's helpful to pay attention in the body because you're really so present yeah kind of as pretty as black and white as it can be sometimes yeah i think that's sort of like first line of defense as a buddhist is is interrupting uh feeling tone and reaction. That's what I was talking about in the beginning of the class, right? It's like our first line of defense uh, because the more we know our body, the more we're aware of it, the more we can simply just watch and experience without reacting, right? I don't think it then means don't, it, it doesn't also then mean we never react, it just means we actually choose a, a constructive response. Yeah, or awareness that what's happening, yeah. that, that anything is happening. Yeah, definitely. And how it's affecting you. Yeah, exactly. For me, you know, yeah. yeah, I think that's kind of the hidden step to what I was saying with my example on the train. Like before I'm going to move into a, for me personally, before I move into a Lojong practice of exchanging myself for another, I first have to acknowledge what's arising. Otherwise it can also be a bypass for some people, bypassing kind of the, the wound inside of us. Yeah. There's one slogan um, that maybe brings up a reactivity to me, and I, I think it might be... Oh, now I know what I'm going to 
put on your sorry. answering machine again. <laughs> it's like when you walk into a room, pretend you're like the loneliest. Of, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I just like, I don't know. I have the loneliest or the, the lowliest, lowliest. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, those are tough ones, and they're not always culturally yeah, relatable I mean, because I'm yeah. That might be some of it, and I'm just like not gonna think of like. I don't want to wrestle with it necessarily. Yeah, no, that's a good... Actually, I, I'd like to say something on that because um, I, I wasn't able to use ones like that. And what it usually is is... Because um, we have such a like uh, struggle with our own self-confidence, you know, just, just growing up in the modern world. So until that comes online a little bit more, those practices are a little bit more inaccessible. And so it's okay. It just means yeah. focus on other things. But, um, but they do work eventually once they're, because it's sort of like the lowliest doesn't mean then you're not valuable. It just means you already know you're inherently valuable just as a human being. But then you start to recognize based on that, that others are also valuable and then you put yourself lower. But yeah, it's definitely more of a, there is a cultural aspect as well as a, um, a bar because I was doing those practices when I had a very low self-confidence and it didn't go the right direction. <laughs> Kind of, yeah. You just end up like, you end up kind of spiritual bypassing. Yeah. That's, that's what I ended up doing. Mm-hmm. Until I realized, oh, I just can't do these right now. But some of the slogans are super relatable mm-hmm. and applicable. But a lot of them are like, you're kind of like bashing the ego. But if yeah. you confuse ego with self, then you're just bashing yourself, yeah. you know? That's tricky. What section is that one? Seven point mind training. There's all these slogans in the set. Which section is that when you're talking? Oh. Yeah, is that towards the beginning? Or? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wherever the main slogans are. There's, I think the... There's, right. Yeah. Which they, they group them in... Uh, yeah, I don't remember. I'm not... didn't memorize the sections. <laughs> Anyways, so maybe we'll stop here. So maybe what we'll do is just dedicate the merit from tonight. So feel free to just close your eyes and settle for a moment. So that warmth we connected with at the beginning of the talk, just coming out of our meditation, see if you can connect with that again. Just based off of our conversation we were just having now, see if that warmth can also be an expression of your own value and confidence. That's one way we can enter this warmth. And then we begin to have that value in others. Not necessarily we have to value their views or opinions, but we value their worth as a human being, that they're another being we share this planet with who wishes for happiness. Just let that warmth begin to grow either in relation to a a close one or just all beings in general. With that warmth, we just begin to share the merit or the positivity and constructive qualities we've been cultivating tonight. We begin to share that with all beings, wishing them happiness, wishing them awakening, wishing them freedom from suffering. Okay, thank you all so much.